0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas Podcast Series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone. Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices within the university, um, it's important that we pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the aboriginal custodians of country. Welcome to Sydney Ideas. I'm Deborah Cobb-Clark. I'm a professor of economics at the School of Economics in the University of Sydney. In tonight's event, we're going to talk about time. How do we use it? What are the differences and similarities across countries, cultures, class, and gender? Time is the ultimate scarce resource, which makes it the perfect topic for economics. We're limited by the number of hours, days, and years in our lives, so what we choose to spend time on and why we do so offers intriguing insights. Our speaker tonight is well-placed to talk about this, having spent a lot of his time on this topic. Professor Daniel Hammermesh is affiliated with Barnard College, and he is the network director of the Institute for Labor Economics in Bonn, Germany. Dan has been widely recognized for his writing and teaching. His work explores labor demand, discrimination, and especially the unusual applications of economics from sleep to beauty. His latest book is Spending Time, which was published this year by Oxford University Press. You can search for it online in your nearest library or head to Sydney Ideas event page, which has links to the book. Spending time is a comprehensive look at what factors determine our decisions on the things we do. So let's get straight into this fascinating topic. Please join with me in welcoming Dan to the stage.
1: Thank you, Deborah. I do want to note, especially nice to be introduced by Deborah, whom I have known since she was an undergraduate student, believe it or not. Okay. We, we have, only fif- only fif- it was only 15 years ago, as I'm sure you can tell, but that's how long I've known her. Uh, what I want to talk about tonight are a bunch of ideas out of this book. Uh, The book is based upon data from many, many countries, regrettably not that much about Australia, but I'll talk about Australia when I can. That's the book, and that's me. A lot of it are just very simple graphs. And the purpose of this graph is to make clear to you not just that time is limited, obviously there's 24 hours in the day except the days we go on summertime and off summertime, but also that... The extent to which our available time has changed is much less than the extent to which our incomes have grown up. So this chart shows data for the U.S. between 60 and 2014 and the U.K. And if you look at the solid lines, that's life expectancy. And as you probably know, life expectancy has risen in most wealthy countries. It's up about 15% over this 54-year period. But look at the change in GDP per capita in real terms, the amount of money we actually have to buy to spend things. And as you can see, this one's rising a lot more rapidly. It's gone up by about 200% over this period in each country. Now, I didn't have this for Australia in the book, I just calculated today what it would be if I had Australia instead of the UK or the US. Uh, over the last 55 years in Australia, life expectancy has gone up 16%. Gone up from about 70 to about 83, 82 and a half for the average person, which is, by the way, higher than it is in the US. Okay? But GDP per capita, the amount of goods we can buy, has gone up by a total of exactly 203%. So in all these countries, you know, we think that money is important. And yet compared to time, it's much less scarce relatively than it used to be. This came clear to me when I was thinking about my life. I've been married for a very long time to that lady in the audience there. And in 1968, we were married, been married for a year and a half. We took a one-week vacation. We went from Connecticut, New England, to Nova Scotia, drove around, We drove around in our car, we lived in a tent, we cooked on a Coleman stove, a little gas stove, buying stuff to cook on it, often pre-prepared stuff, okay? One week, both of our time, same amount of time, but a really cheap vacation. In 1987 or 8, I can't remember which, we also had a one-week vacation. We flew to Paris, rented a car, drove around the Loire Valley, and ate in four one-star Michelin restaurants. Why the difference? Same time, but we had a lot more money, no more time to do anything with, because, in fact, we were working like crazy, and I, at least, was at the peak of my earnings, and she was moving rapidly up in her new career as an attorney. So this is quite typical, but it really affects how you behave. And it's typical everywhere. If you go to a poorer country, a middle-income country, Brazil or Mexico I did this for, for them the increase in available income, the available things they can buy, has been even more rapid compared to the growth in life expectancy. This is a ubiquitous problem across countries, across people, and over time. So how can we get information on this? And what has been done for 100 years is social scientists, actually more sociologists than economists, I'm a bit embarrassed to say, have collected what are called time diaries. So imagine yourself as a 1,000 people in the month, a month in the U.S. do. Imagine yourself sitting down at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning and filling out a list of what you were doing at every minute between 4 a.m. today and 3.59 a.m. tomorrow morning. Could you do it? Yeah, you might make some mistakes. But come and start off easy. 4 AM, what were you doing? Almost everybody be sleeping. And all we ask is not that you fill in sleep for every minute, but when you did something different, put in what you started doing then. So in my case, I would put down 4 AM sleeping, 5.45, regrettably, up and lying there washing, washing up thinking, getting ready for breakfast. I could go on the whole day. It's very short recall, remember. Just sit back and think about it, you can do it, okay? So these are the data that have been used. The US has now for almost fif- more than 15 years gotten a 1,000 of these every month. The reason I don't do much on Australia here is very simple. You guys did this the last time in 2004. You did it in 92, 97, 04, and you've stopped since then, which bothers me like crazy. Otherwise, I'd be using Aussie data. Okay, we have this information. How do you classify all the things? I mean, a lot of this is just pigeonholing things. Well, not so easy. Like any accounting procedure, you got to think about some overriding rules. What's been done in this business is divide how we spend our time into four main categories: paid work. That's pretty. It's not going to show up very there. That's pretty obvious. You're paid. You go to work. Commuting. You look for a job if you're interested in doing so. You study. Go to school. That's work. Paid work or something that would very clearly feed into your future work. Next, personal activities, things that we have to do on most days. The most obvious one is sleep. Okay, Washing up, you don't have to do that, but you'd probably be unwelcome on the light rail if you didn't wash up all the time. Uh, Sex is a personal activity. You don't have to do it, but it's pretty much a human thing. These are things that you must do yourself. You can't pay somebody to do them for you. So we found this cartoon here to illustrate why personal activities require you doing it, okay? I just love this, okay? I'm not sure I'd want a contract out, but in fact, you can. It's a ridiculous idea. So keep in mind, work, paid work, and personal activities Next, what we call home production. These are things you could pay somebody to do for you in your place, such as childcare, shopping, cooking, cleaning, walking the dog, things you could contract out. Ask yourself how much time you spend on that. I'll show you in a minute an actual data on this. Lastly, leisure, the things presumably we're doing that we enjoy the most, television watching, exercising. These are things that you can't pay someone to do for you you must do them yourself, but you don't have to do them. So this illustrates that in this case. Uh, you know, and reading Proust is a major activity. And you can't pay somebody. He doesn't look very happy, by the way, reading Proust, which I can sympathize with. And the other guy is delighted to be able to say he's read Proust. OK. How much of this goes on? These are data from these diaries, in recent data from four co- six countries. Again, Australia is not included there. Uh, And basically, you can see pretty clearly that we think work is the main thing, but it isn't at all. Personal activities are by far the most important thing we do. And which one of those personal activities, it's not sex, by the way, which one of them is the most important thing we do? Sleep, of course. I mean, it's not eight hours a day everywhere, but it's something sort of like that. Okay. Now, notice this. Next comes leisure. Next comes home production. The things you could pay somebody to do for you do not account to very much of for very much of your day. I mean, even if you're the richest person in Australia and you didn't want to do any cooking, any reading to your kids, any shopping, it's going to save you four lousy hours a day. There's not much time to be gotten rid of. Paid work is smaller. Look at the paid work. I'll come back to it. There is one real outlier there, isn't there? The black bar, which is my country. Yeah, we'll come back to that, because I think that's fascinating, and it is something which has a lesson, I think, for Australia. Okay, so given that time is increasingly relatively scarce, who is stressed for time? Who complains about being time poor, which is a term I don't like at all? Okay, This are older data for the U.S., Australia, and Germany, and the black line are people who are always or often stressed for time, who say they are. The diagonal are people who say they're never stressed, and the vertical axis, we have the amount that they earn per week. Notice, in all three countries, as the earnings goes down, people are less stressed for time. They feel less rushed. People being complaining about time being scarce are those who are earning more. And of course, what do they say about income being scarce? If I were to graph that, it would look just the opposite. The folks who are earning a lot, no problem with income. The folks who are not earning very much say they're really short of income. You are either stressed for time or you're stressed for money. Take your pick. I think I'd rather be stressed for time. And if you're stressed for time, what does this tell you you should do if you're bothered by it? Give the money away. You won't have as much money to go chasing the time. You might allegedly be happier. I doubt that. What are the... Let me skip that one. The quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald, who said, The rich are different from us, to which Ernest Hemingway famously replied, Yes, they have more money. Okay, but in fact, there's one other difference because time and money go together. Okay, so who works more, the rich or poor? How do they spend their time, and how will inequality changing affect the answers to this? So, this looks at people in the top five percent of the income distribution in the U.S. and France compared to the rest of the people in the country. So, this is looking at the top five percent, which in the U.S are families with income about 225000 U.S. dollars a year. These are not the super rich. These are the well-off upper middle class. And what they're doing, not surprisingly, in both the U.S. and France, is that they're working more. The major way we make money is working for pay. In the U.S., almost no difference between the upper class and the rest in home production. The interesting thing is what they cut back on to afford the time for sleeping. And you can see it's two things. It's to afford time for working. It's sleep. If you can make more money by working, you will cut back your sleep. That's true there. I know I did this for Australia also for 1992. It looks the same. But even more important than sleep, you cut back on TV watching. TV watching is a poor person's activity. And if you're earning more or can earn more, I mean, that's, that's not a pejorative comment about the quality of TV, although I could certainly make those. Rather, it's simply that the incentives to work are such that you work more and you got to cut back somewhere because they're 24 hours in a day. All right, what's happened to inequality? This shows it for five countries four European countries in the US. UK is a European country, in case you didn't know that, despite Boris, okay? And you can see in most of them it's been rising. I looked at the stuff for Australia, and it would sort of look in the middle here in terms of the rise and in terms of the level. The rise in inequality, it's been there. It's not been as stark as in the US in the last 30 years, but it's certainly there, okay? So what's gonna happen with rising inequality? Well, rising inequality is going to make things worse. Okay, Difference in how we use time. Look, if my income is higher, if I can earn more, I'll spend even more time working. We've seen that happening. I'll spend less time than other people watching TV and sleeping. So I'm quite convinced if the rise in inequality in the US and elsewhere continues, that graph I showed you earlier will look even more stark than it does now. Okay. The rich have it well, despite complaining about time. Rich people do more things. They buy more things, right? (laughs) Variety is good. They also do more things. Even outside their work hours, even in their fewer non-work hours in the countries I've looked at, the rich are doing more different non-work activities. Does that make them better off or worse off? I'd say better. I mean, they've chosen to do it. And variety, we think, as economists, makes you feel better, makes you happier. Okay, men versus women. So ask yourself a question, who works more, men or women? <laughs> well, wait, wait, look at, I mean, you never answer in economics a question directly like that. The answer is, what's work? Who works more for pay, men or women? men do. Okay. Although the differences are much smaller than they used to be. In some countries, Sweden in particular, they're almost non-existent these days. Okay. So I showed before I didn't go over this work is the most stressful thing we do. So if that's true and men work more, men should be more stressed for time. In every country I've looked at, uh, no, we didn't have that here. Sorry. In every country I've looked at, Australia being one of them, women are more stressed for time. Women complain more about not having enough time. Even with the same number of kids, married, partnered, not married, not partnered, everything else the same, women are still complaining about being stressed for time. Why is that? I don't know how many of you, if you've had little kids, they call us. We call it home a parent-teacher day or a teacher training day. The kids get off and the teacher does something, okay? Kid suddenly stays home. Who has to disrupt his or her schedule to take care of the kid? The mother does, okay? Something goes wrong. Who's in charge? The mother. So I think the issue, the reason women are more bothered by time scarcity is because they're the managers of most households. They're juggling things. I'm not saying this is good. That's just the way it is. But women in fact do less work for pay than men do. But what if you define work not as paid work only, but every feminist I know would say work in the home, kid care, shopping, cooking, cleaning up is also work. And that's been acknowledged in a number of countries when we try to measure GDP, expand the notion. This is a graph for 25 countries Australia is right there in 92. Look at that. This line is a line of equality. Along this line, men and women are doing the same amount of total work, work for pay and work in the home. In Australia in 92, these numbers were identical. And that's true in many rich countries, in fact. The U.S., I think, is up there almost on the line. Israel Ladies, you should go there. The guys are doing more work. It's a good deal for you. But notice the countries where it's different, though, where, in fact, women are doing substantially more work. South Africa, I think it's Madagascar, Turkey, Hungary, Slovenia. Rather poorer countries, right? And also my favorite, this one up here, Italy, where women do an awful lot more work at home compared to men, and don't work as much for pay. That's a real outlier. But in rich, non-Catholic, industrialized countries, these numbers lie along the line here. Men don't work more than women. Women don't work more than men. It's about the same. Okay, who works more in total? We saw that. Outside of sleeping and work, TV watching is the biggest thing we do. And Americans are champions of TV watching. Uh, I did this for Australia in 92. I don't know what it's like today, but certainly look at this. And even compared to the UK, we're watching an extra hour plus per week. Okay? I don't know why it is. I don't think it's that the data are any differently recorded. Americans just watch a lot of TV, which is really surprising because they also work more, okay? We spend a lot of time watching television, and that's especially true for guys. I mean, the male-female difference in the U.S. is three hours, in the U.K., three, somewhat less in Germany and France, only two. Why is that? What are guys doing? They're watching sports on weekends in particular. The difference is huge on Saturday and the U.S. especially on Sundays. So I say that's what I like this line. The couch potato is a gendered American vegetable. That's what it is. Okay. We're we're the champs of that. Okay. Let's talk about the thing that I think makes the U.S. most different from the rest of the world. I think all the rest of these things, except for the TV, result from it. So we can measure how much we work along three different dimensions. In terms of the fraction of us who are working in every given week, the U.S. is 63%, looks very, very similar to other countries. Australia is much higher, France, Germany, Japan, lower, okay? is right in the middle in terms of the fraction of people who in a given week are working, okay? In terms of hours per week, the U.S. is also very much in the middle of the ballpark. Pardon me. They're very much in the middle of the oval. That's better. Uh, It's about 35, 37 hours for the average worker who is working that week. Australia, I'm sure, looks very similar. And yet, look at this chart here, which shows for Australia and seven other countries, including the US, the annual hours worked per worker, which in Australia has fallen. In Canada, you know, very similar to the U.S., we think, fallen. Germany, we don't have 1979 because the country was split then, but it's really low, very short hours per worker. Even Japan, which people think about as the work champion of the rich world, fallen like crazy. Oops. And Sweden hasn't fallen, but it's really low, UK fallen in the U.S. almost no change over a forty-year period, and the U.S. is now the champion of work per worker in the rich world. Okay. It's a remarkable change. If I, I've been in this business for fifty-some years, giving this lecture in '79, nothing special about the U.S. The other countries have all changed, other rich countries, including you guys, and the U.S. has not. And it's not because of unemployment being high or low. 2014 was a pretty good time in all these countries. So why is this happening? It's because you all get paid pub- paid holidays, don't you? The government says you must have how many holidays per year you get paid for? Four weeks. Everybody knows that. I asked my students today in class, they said, oh, yeah, four weeks. Uh, Norway is five weeks. Germany, I think, is four or five. It depends which state you're in. Switzerland, not exactly a poor country, gets five weeks. And you have paid public holidays. We have public holidays, paid or not, nine or ten. You have more than that. And you have the most wonderful thing in the world, long service leave, which I think is a fantastic institution because it gives you the same thing that I as a professor get, a sabbatical, a long time away from work to recharge my batteries or do whatever I want, The U.S., there is no government mandated paid leave time, paid holidays. About 75% of workers do get paid holiday. The average such worker gets two weeks a year. So it's not surprising given that there's no mandate to do it, that in fact, U.S. works more Not that more of us are working, not that we're working longer. When we work, we just don't get holiday time, and you all do, and most countries do. This is the biggest difference. It just seems crystal clear to me that's what causes so much of the American exceptionalism. It's not, people have said, well, maybe it's because we're being forced by manipulative advertisers to desire more and more things that we need to buy, so we're working like dogs in order to be able to buy them. I don't know. I'm watching some television here. There's a lot of advertising on Aussie TV as well. And there certainly is in Europe as well. I don't believe the consumerism is true. And even if it were, it's been true my entire lifetime. And why should suddenly we now still be doing the same thing, whereas nobody else is? It's not unions. Unions died off. I didn't die off, but they became unimportant in the 1990s. There's nothing new on that. The issue is very simple. It's a political stalemate. We do not have the political willpower the way every other rich country did to mandate paid holidays for workers. It's as simple as that. You've done this. Everybody else has done it. We don't. How are we doing time-wise here? Doing fairly well. Okay. When do we work? Another American exceptionalism. How many of you have traveled in the U.S.? Have you been able to shop at night? Weekends, Sundays, everything's open all the time. And it shows. This is the fraction of people, the solid line, solid bars, the fraction of people working at night on a typical day. That's 25%. That means between 10 p.m. and 6 6 a.m. In Europe, nothing. 7% France, 13% in Germany. 11 in the Netherlands, even the UK, which is most like the U.S. among West, Western European countries, is still substantially less than us. I don't have this for Australia. I'm sorry. Uh, I never did that in the 92 data, but I bet it's somewhat a little bit lower than the UK. That's my best bet. OK, so we're working much more at night. What if I would do the same thing for weekends? You shopped on the weekends. No problem, right? You can go to the 7-Eleven any time of the week and you're there. Okay, so again, Americans work more. Americans work more at crazy times than anybody else in any other rich country. The reason I bring this up and stress the U.S. is one of the people I talked to about this lecture said people view the U.S. as a model for what Australia should be doing. And I don't mean even ignoring Trump, which is another issue entirely. Even without him, it is not a model of well-being. I'll show you a picture on that, which we found, okay? So what can a country do to solve this problem of, I would regard, sort of being like a gerbils in a gerbil-tude, running as fast as you can and not getting much out of it? Well, maybe we should do things on our own to reduce stress. I mean, I do things like that. I walk home from my job in New York City, takes me an hour and a quarter. Uh, it's much more relaxing than taking the subway for 20 minutes. It's not that it saves me a $1.35, which is nothing. It just relaxes me. I suppose we could do things like that. Companies could do a 32-hour work week. I get this from the press all the time. Are you going to do that in your industry if nobody else does it, are you going to cut back 32 hours and raise your costs? No way. It puts you, the employer, and your company at a competitive disadvantage. And no single company is going to do that. The incentives are just wrong. Just as it's wrong for me to tell my kids, don't play so hard or tell my grandchild, don't work so hard on your cello. Take it easy. I guarantees he will not do well in the cello business. Eh? The only th- solution for this, which others, I say other countries do, is to engage in a public activity to have the government mandate. We don't like government in the US, you don't like it either, but they do something. What they do is they solve problems of incentives when one person doing something good for all of us will not do it because he or she is hurt by doing it him or herself. The best illustration of I, of this here oops, is this picture my wife took last week, okay, of downtown Sydney, and this is, I think, in the domain. I think that's where it is. You all know that. At lunchtime, these are office workers who've come out of lunch to play soccer. You call it football. No, you don't call it football either. Football is Aussie rules football. They're doing something with a ball there anyway. (laughs) And they're on their lunch hour, spending an hour doing this. I have never seen either in downtown Chicago, where I've spent some time, or in Manhattan, New York, in the same kind of central business district, people doing something like this. I view this as wonderfully beneficial and a good indicator of a fairly sane society. And I would urge you, therefore, to my admonition not to be imitating the U.S. in our own attitudes toward work. Thank you very much.
0: Don't disappear. Come and have a seat.
1: Okay, we're going to sit down for a bit if we can can handle it.
0: Yeah, so maybe— Maybe before I start with the serious stuff, I just, I'm really, I mean, I read the book. Um, it's an incredibly, well, first of all, it's very well written if you haven't read it. Um, it's an impressive compendium of years and years and years of stuff that you've been working on. So I was really intrigued to know what led you to be interested in time in the first place. I mean, why was this the research agenda?
1: Let's think about that. I've been hung up on time as my wife would vouch for ever since I was a little kid. When I was four years old, my mom got me an analog watch. They didn't have digital watches in 1947, in case you didn't know that. And I learned to tell time at age four. So I was hung up on time. But also, I've been hung up on numbers since I was four years old because my grandma, my mother's mother, taught me to play casino. Oh, yeah. which my guess is the game is not played too often. How many know what casino is?
0: Oh, oh.
1: I, yeah, maybe it's an American game only, but I don't think so. It's in the rules. It's a bit old fashioned. Anyway, day. you have to learn to add the You got to <laughs> learn to add the 10 in this game. So I learned to add the 10 at age four. And I've been hung up on numbers in time ever since. I drove my baby sister crazy when we we're teenagers. We did a, census of men's first names in the local telephone directory. We got through the L last names until she got so angry, she threw the book at me and said, we're done, okay? We did it for a month. So yeah, I'm hung up on this. I've been hung up since I was a tiny kid, I'm not 72 years ago.
0: Very good. Okay, so I wanted to um, ask you kind of to project into the future a bit, right? The Economist recently reported that Um, About 47% of Americans are in jobs that are, um, they have a high potential for automation. And the stuff that um, Darren Ashimoglu at MIT and his colleagues are doing is suggesting that, you know, once the robots sort of begin to move into occupations, there's pretty sizable falls in labor force participation. So I guess what I'm uh, really interested in is. How you see these kind of technological changes that we think are happening in, in work changing the way people spend their time?
1: I'm not so sure they're happening as much as Asimoliou says. There are a couple of other well-known economists, one Nobel Prize winner, whom you know, I believe, who says these things are happening, but in terms of their effects on the amount of work that we do, it isn't so great. I remember in 1960, a man named Robert Theobald published a book on automation saying within 30 years, we're all going to be out of a job because robots, machines will be doing everything. You can ask yourself the same thing going back to uh, well, 1787, for example, just to pick a date non-randomly, you know. 150 people might have had jobs in Australia then, among the white population, a couple of millions among the indigenous population. How have you been able to provide jobs for 25 million people here, or however many are working? Somehow, despite the tremendous improvement in technology, people are getting jobs. So I'm quite dubious about that. But let's say it really happens, okay? And let's say, no, we're not going to be working 10 hours a week, but cutting back a few hours. There is some evidence on that, because Japan and Korea have mandated cuts in hours by making employers pay more for overtime and pay overtime payments starting at 40 rather than 48. What do people do with the extra time? Well, it's not the things that you would think are so wonderful. They aren't learning much more. The Japanese are spending more time watching television, <laughs> which may not be so admirable. The Koreans were spending a lot more time grooming themselves. <laughs> Korean men are champions on grooming, by the way. So I think this is good. I think it will happen, but the effects aren't going to be real large, nor are they going to lead to a change toward the activities that you or I might view as being very good for people to be doing.
0: Good. So what do you see as kind of the burning unknowns? I mean, what's the, what's the future research agenda that we, what do we still need to
1: understand about time? What I'd like to understand is what's happening as, A, in different countries, and B, as more equality of the amount people can make between men and women has occurred, okay? There's a lot of work on this. I don't find it very, very satisfying. But there's no question there's been a sharp rise in male and a sharp decline in the difference between men and women working. This is going to continue, at least in the U.S., where increasingly the College students I teach, they're female. And looking around the campus here at U-Sydney, I don't know the numbers, but I'd be happy to bet the majority of undergraduates are women, right? Yep. Now, that being the case, as these more equal people displace their mothers, fathers, and grandfathers, and grandmothers where things are less equal, what's going to happen to gender differences and who takes care of kids, which has happened a little bit already, mm-hmm. TV watching and the kinds of leisure we engage in? That's the interesting it's not a research question so much as a question of what's going to happen in the future. And I'd like to live long enough to see that happen.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.